This morning, we continue our study in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel. And while we'll be looking at verses 10 through 21, I want to begin again by just reading the first couple of verses. Let's look at it together. Starting in verse 10. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And every opportunity that we have as the body of Christ to behold the love and compassion of our Savior is truly a great privilege. Father, I pray for everyone who is either listening or in attendance today, that you and your sovereign mercy would give them eyes to see and behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. The title of our message today is Freedom in Christ. And I'll give you the main point right up front. Freedom from bondage is the evidence that God's redeeming work in Christ has come. Let me say that again. Freedom from bondage is the evidence that God's redeeming work in Christ has come. And to understand this reality, to grasp its foundation, we actually need to turn our attention back to another Sabbath day in the life and ministry of our Lord So if you have your Bible, you can turn over to chapter 4, and you'll recall Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. He successfully endures every temptation of the devil without sin. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and we pick up in verse 16. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's one thing for a person to make a truth claim in the name of God, such as this scripture is fulfilled. The anointing of the spirit is upon me. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. And Jesus addresses this reality He draws attention to it in chapter 5 when he heals the paralytic. You remember, he says, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven than take up your mat and walk. Why is that? Well, that's because we can't verify with our eyes that a spiritual reality such as the spirit of the Lord is upon me or a spiritual transaction such as your sins are forgiven has occurred. But we can verify with our eyes whether a lame man can get up and walk or whether a blind man can see. Thankfully for us, God definitively proves to the world 
that his redeeming work in Christ has come through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And if we were to start in chapter 4, we see him cast out demons. He heals the sick. He makes fish appear in the disciples' nets. He cleansed a leper. He heals a paralytic. And that's just chapters 4 and 5. So today, now, we turn our attention to this passage at hand in Luke 13 to see another example of God's redeeming work in Christ. And as you turn back to chapter 13, that should be the first point on your bulletin. It should read, God's redeeming work in Christ has come. God's redeeming work in Christ has come. So we start in verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So we see him here teaching. And as we've already noted, this was his custom. You remember later in chapter 4, when the crowds were begging him to stay, please stay with us, continue to heal our sick. Jesus says, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for this is why I was sent. I came for this purpose, so I have to do it. And that's exactly what we find him doing here again. Just a beautiful testimony to the faithfulness of our Lord. Now, there's a word in this opening verse that should cause us to pause. It specifically says that Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I see the word Sabbath in close proximity to Jesus, I know what's coming. Or I at least assume I know what's coming, and that is conflict is coming, right? And we've already witnessed two conflicts with the Lord Jesus over Sabbath issues and its observance and what was allowed and what wasn't allowed in chapter 6. And this passage is no exception. But while we anticipate conflict, and it's coming, Luke begins by drawing our attention elsewhere. Look at verse 11. And behold, meaning, look here, this is what I want you to see. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Luke wants our focus to be on this woman. So let's spend some time getting to know her. The first detail we learn about this woman is that she had a disabling spirit. Now, we know from Scripture that there was a common belief that if someone was sick or someone had a condition like blindness, that they assumed that it was either because that person had sinned or someone else had sinned. And this is the issue in John chapter 9, right? But the text here gives us no indication that this woman's condition was the result of any sin she had committed. Rather, it tells us, it's revealed to us that her condition is the result of supernatural bondage. A powerful, evil demon is holding her captive. So we begin with the recognition that this poor woman had known real darkness. The second detail we learn about this woman is that this had been her condition for 18 years. In the Greek text, Luke puts the word year first for emphasis so that you'll grasp that we're not talking about days or weeks or even months. We are talking about years and many of them. And to help give you some perspective, I want you to take a moment to consider where were you 18 years ago? Perhaps some of you in this room weren't even born 18 years ago. I actually had to get out a calculator. That might sound embarrassing, but I had to get out a calculator to determine how long ago was 18 years for me, and I found out that I was still in high school. And consider that when I was in high school, the furthest reaching question that my guidance counselor was equipped with was, where do you plan to be in 10 years, right? 
Okay, you maybe you go to college. What after that? Where are you going to be in 10 years when you come back for that reunion? And consider this is almost nearly double that amount of time, right? 18 years. Now, to pull you behind the curtain, our kids were recently just sick on and off for about four weeks. And if you're a parent in the room, you know what I'm talking about. You've been here before. And I was going crazy. We were going crazy. We thought this is, I prayed for the Lord's return like I had never prayed for in my life. Lord, please just come and put us out of our misery. I can't take anymore. Four weeks. And that is literally 932 weeks less than this woman experienced her sickness. That's a long time. The third detail we learned about this woman. She was bent over as a result of this disabling spirit and she couldn't straighten herself up. Think about that for a moment. How would your life be if this was your condition? How would it impact your job responsibilities? How would it impact your dating life or your marriage or your parenting? How would people treat you? What would people say behind your back? In fact, probably even worse, what would people say to your face? And let me ask you this question. How comfortable would you feel if when I got up here to preach, I began by bending over and preached the whole sermon in that position? We'd probably all feel a little uncomfortable, wouldn't we? It was not a blessing to be in this condition. In fact, it was a desperate, painful condition that she was in, and it almost seems hopeless. But there's one more detail we find out about this woman, and that is her location. Where is she? She's in the Sabbath. Sorry, she's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, right? Now, we don't get any information in the text as to why she was there. We don't know if she maybe came to be healed. Maybe she heard Jesus would be teaching. She thought, maybe I can come there and get healed. Or if she was just a devout Jewish woman who wanted to be there and hear the preaching of the Lord's word and to respond in worship to him. We don't know why she was there, but we can be certain of this. There are many other places she could have been, but she's in the right place. So now that Luke has helped us to see this woman with our own eyes, he writes these words. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, I cannot express how deeply I was moved in my studies when I first read those words. When Jesus saw her. He doesn't look away. He doesn't stare in horror. No, he is looking for people like her. You remember? I was sent for the captives. I was sent for the blind. I was sent for those who are oppressed because I have good news for them. I have good news from God that he wants to bring to those men and women made in his image. He raises his voice. Not to call her names, but to call her over and say, woman, you are freed from your disability. And how sweet it would have been to hear those words. This is what God's redeeming work in Christ looked like. It's freedom from bondage, freedom from spiritual oppression and slavery. And we see the result in verse 13. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Notice that her healing wasn't a process. It was instantaneous, and there could only be one response, and that response is that this woman, freed of her condition now, is able to lift her hands and continuously glorify God for his gracious deliverance. And that is our main point in action. Freedom from bondage is the evidence that God's redeeming work in Christ has come. And the evidence is compelling, isn't it? We've just seen another incredible miracle, which might actually, after all these miracles, cause you to ponder. 
Why after miracle after miracle does Luke continue to give us more and more evidence of God's redeeming work breaking through into this broken, sinful world through the Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Well, I think one answer that we could give is because not everyone believed the evidence. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. At last, this is the conflict we've all been waiting for, that we've been anticipating. And now that we've spent some time getting to know the woman, let's spend some time considering the ruler. A ruler of a synagogue would have been responsible for all of the activities that happened within the synagogue. He had a measure of oversight there by virtue of his title. He had authority. And when he spoke, it had influence among the community. And as he begins to respond to what happened, we learn a few things about him. And the first detail I want you to see is that this ruler became indignant. He is angry. He is incensed. He is filled with rage. And Luke makes the reason for his anger clear. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That's what he did to provoke this rage. Because from the ruler's perspective, this looked like a human work, which was forbidden on the Sabbath, which is why he quotes the Mosaic Law. By way of reminder, so we're all on the same page. Exodus 20, starting in verse 10, reads, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's what he's citing. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And when you read the Mosaic Law, it is abundantly clear that God takes the Sabbath principle very seriously. Exodus 35 tells us that the penalty for not keeping the Sabbath day holy was death. No exceptions. Exodus 23 also tells us that Israel was required to give the land that God had given them a Sabbath rest every seven years. Meaning that you would sow seed for six years, and then on that seventh year, you were not to sow any seed at all. In fact, on the sixth year, God said, I will provide enough food for you in order to provide for the land having its rest. So you won't starve, I'll take care of you. Just like when Moses brought Israel through the wilderness, they gathered twice as much bread on the sixth day, and they didn't gather any bread on the Sabbath, because there was none. God takes this very seriously, and because God took the Sabbath seriously, so did the religious leaders, which leaves us now with the angry ruler. Now, we know from Scripture that righteous anger or zeal for God's law, for his commandments, for the things that he requires, is good in his sight. And when we get to Luke chapter 19, we will see an instance of this when Jesus, filled with righteous anger, he will cleanse the temple... And he will quote scripture saying, my house shall be a house of prayer. That's what's written. And you have turned it into a den of robbers. Righteous anger. So we have to ask ourselves, was this an example of righteous anger by the ruler? Well, let's keep looking. The second detail we learned about this ruler is that he does not know. He shows us his ignorance regarding the source of this woman's healing. His conclusion that Jesus' healing was a human work on the Sabbath and a violation of God's law shows us that he is ignorant of the true source, namely God himself. And Luke shows us this in the verb that he gives us for you are freed. 
is a special kind of verb. We call it a divine passive. What that means is the action is revealed to be something that God has done, not something that man has done. So neither was this a human work, nor was it a violation of God's law, which means that the ruler's anger, his indignant uh, attitude was unfounded and illegitimate. So he is not in the right here. Which brings us to the third detail we learned about this ruler. And that is that he does not accurately interpret God's law. No doubt, to be a synagogue ruler, you would have had to have been very familiar with the law of Moses. In fact, I would assume that many of them had it memorized. So that he is accurately able to cite the fourth commandment. He doesn't have to dig through the recesses of his mind. He knows what the Torah says. And that's why he brings it up. But listen to his interpretation. How in view of what God has said, now the, the command or the exhortation that he gives in view of how he's interpreting God's law. 14, verse 14. Uh, if you have the ESV, you'll notice that the quote of the ruler here begins with, there are, I think that's a shortcoming actually, because in the Greek, there is a coordinating conjunction there. So... Or therefore, so therefore, in view of God's principle that there are six days in which work should be done, therefore, come on those days and be healed and not the Sabbath day. That's a command. Be healed on other days, not the Sabbath day. So according to his interpretation, it was not appropriate for a person to come and to seek to be healed, or we could say loosed from their bondage, as we'll see a little bit later, on the Sabbath in view of God's decree. After all, what's another day when you've been sick for 18 years? Right? I love how R. Kent Hughes summarizes the ruler in this encounter. He writes, This ruler had no heart to pity the poor woman's plight. No eye for the beauty of Christ's compassion. No soul to rejoice with the woman's deliverance. And no ear for the music of her praise. And now that he's done speaking, it's Jesus' turn to talk. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? He begins with a strong rebuke, and I think that's fitting. Now, to call someone a hypocrite could mean that the person is someone who says one thing and does another. That is an appropriate use of hypocrite. But as Pastor Cliff pointed out back in chapter 12, verse 56, Jesus also used the word hypocrite to refer to those who were unable to interpret God's divine intervention in the present time through the work of his son. Right? You remember that? You'll recall. They were able to accurately interpret the weather, but they could not interpret that God's redeeming work in Christ had come despite all of the evidence. And there was a lot of evidence. And I believe that's closer to the meaning that Jesus is using here. So, why were they hypocritical? Let's take a look. Jesus continues. All of you understand that it is appropriate in God's sight to untie your livestock on the Sabbath in order to provide for its needs. This is common sense. If you've ever owned an animal, if you've ever taken care of someone else's animal, animals do not take a day off of eating or drinking, do they? They need it every day, just like we don't take a day off from eating or drinking. We do it every day. And as a result, everyone in Israel 
when they looked at the Sabbath principle, interpreted in such a way that allowed for them to provide for the needs of their livestock. They, weren't, they, they looked at it and they could recognize in God's law that to untie their livestock and to provide for their needs would not have been a violation or a human work. Because after all, the animals need to be provided for. And this is where Jesus catches them in their hypocrisy by arguing from the lesser to the greater. So, in view of the reality that it is appropriate to care for the needs of an animal on the Sabbath, verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? In making the stronger case for the woman's healing, Jesus gives the crowd the information that they need to understand his argument. First, Jesus reminds them that this is a daughter of Abraham. By virtue of being a Jewish woman, she was an intended beneficiary of all of God's covenant promises to Abraham. Blessings like you could not even fathom. And while every human made in God's image is precious in his sight, we know that God had a special love and affection for his people, his chosen people. And if you want a great reminder of that, I would encourage you to go back to listen to Justin's sermon on Hosea 11. God loved his people. And I think all of them in a different context would agree that a child of Abraham has infinitely more value than an ox or a donkey. Second, Jesus reveals to this crowd that this woman had been bound by Satan. The crowd would have had no way of knowing that this woman's condition was actually the result of satanic bondage. Consider the Old Testament example of Job. We were just talking about this at our elder meeting. Pastor Cliff and Pastor Peter made this observation. When you consider all of the counsel that Job's friends gave to Job, some 30 chapters worth, that's a lot of counsel in the pages of Scripture. Not one of their counsel considered that his trial was the result of satanic activity. Not one. And we know from the first two chapters that that's the whole reason it's happening. Because of God's sovereign allowance of Satan to test this man. So when Jesus pulls back the curtain and he brings the light of the world into this situation so that they can see, there's only one correct answer to this question. Of course, of course it is appropriate. In fact, it is most appropriate that this woman be loosed from her satanic stronghold on the Sabbath day so that she might have her physical and her spiritual needs provided for. Verse 17. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. This highlights that there are really only two possible outcomes of an encounter with Jesus. If you oppose Jesus, if you willfully resist the evidence of God's redeeming work in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be put to shame in his presence. And this is where the response of the scribes and the Pharisees in Luke 6 can give us more insight than our current passage. So I'll read this for you. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? 
And after looking around at all of them, he said to them, to, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they, that's the religious leaders, were filled with fury, much like our ruler here. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. There it is. Rage that results in opposition to Jesus. And we know from the rest of the gospel accounts that their plans to harm Jesus ultimately will culminate in the most evil act to ever happen in the history of the world, and that is the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. But if you behold Jesus, if you joyfully believe the evidence of God's redeeming work and that it has come in the person of Christ and it is available to all who draw near by faith, you will, like some of these people here, rejoice in the glorious things that he does. It will be your very posture before the Lord. So, with the healing of this woman, we behold another example that freedom from bondage is the evidence that God's redeeming work in Christ has come. Which brings us to the second point on your bulletin. And it should read, God's redeeming work in Christ will continue. God's redeeming work in Christ will continue. Looking at verse 18, you'll notice that it begins with a therefore. Namely, as a result of the event that just transpired, Jesus is now going to take the opportunity to do what he was sent to do, and that is to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. And as Jesus often does, he is going to use parables to illustrate the connection between what they are witnessing, namely God's redeeming work in Christ, and what the world can expect to witness from this moment on which is God's continued redeeming work in Christ. And by way of reminder, a parable is just a simple story that illustrates a main point. And you'll notice, I think this is beautiful, that two of these parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God are common to the listener. It's not advanced. It's very simple. A man who sows seed and a woman who makes bread. Everyday stuff. Very simple. But while the, the simplicity and the reliability, relatability of a parable made it effective, we also learned many chapters ago in chapter 8 that it was also used by the Lord to obscure truth from those who were not really interested in his message, which, I, which is why I believe in the midst of all this rejoicing, Jesus is going to use two parables that cut through the excitement to reach the ears of those who are really listening. Let's look at the parables now. First parable. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in his branches. Now, the parable of the mustard seed is very familiar to us. And in Matthew and Mark, we see that Jesus emphasis falls on the reality that the kingdom of God begins very small, has humble beginnings, and it grows to be very big. So despite its small beginning, it is going to be very big. But in Luke's gospel, I think Jesus' emphasis is not as much about the humble beginnings of the kingdom, which is why there's no mention of the size of the seed in Luke's account here. Rather, it seems that Luke is more focused on the result of the seed's growth, which is namely a large tree that becomes a home for all kinds of birds. And on this point, some commentators will see this as a reference to Ezekiel 17, 
And I just want to read it for you briefly. Listen to this. Thus saith the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the top, topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will rest. And if this is Luke's intended purpose here in recording these words of Jesus, we can see that it's God's plan for every kind of bird, namely the representation of all nations in God's kingdom plan, to nest in the tree, the noble cedar that is the Messiah, that the Lord will establish in Israel, that will come from Israel. That provision for the whole world coming from Israel. And given that Luke is the only Gentile author of Scripture, to our understanding, it makes sense that he would emphasize the universal nature of God's kingdom. And it fits perfectly with his conclusion at the end of his gospel. Listen to this. Jesus says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So this idea that from Jerusalem, from Israel, comes up this method by which God is going to bring blessing to all of the world. Okay? So the first parable illustrates the large universal nature of the kingdom. Which brings us to the second parable. Look at verse 20. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, in other parables, leaven has not been a positive thing, but a negative one. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees and how it spreads. But here, I think it's, it's, a, it's a positive one. Jesus is emphasizing the powerful influence of God's kingdom in the world. Right? Yeast is taken. It is hidden in a measure of flour. It cannot be seen. Yet, despite its unassuming presence, it spreads to affect the whole mixture until it grows. It's pervasive. It spreads all over the whole mixture. And in the same way, God's redeeming work in Christ, though relatively hidden from the world's sight, will have a powerful influence on the world. And when taken together, I think the point of both of these parables is clear. God's redeeming work in Christ has not only come, but it will continue. In conclusion, as we have seen before and as we will see again in our study of Luke's gospel, freedom from bondage is the evidence that God's redeeming work in Christ has come. And the greatest evidence of that reality is seen in the completed work of our Lord Jesus. You'll remember the words of the resurrected Lord in Luke 24, where he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This is the climax of God's redeeming work. It is the gospel of our salvation, the good news that Christ came to accomplish and to proclaim. But not only had God's redeeming work in Christ come, he promised that it would continue, which is why he continues. I'll read it again. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. It has got to go somewhere else. It will continue to grow. You can count on it. It is a promise and a prophecy from our Lord Jesus Christ. It will happen. It was written in the past and it must continue. And if you want the proof, if you want the rest of the story... 
you can pick up Luke's second edition, the Acts of the Apostles, and see God's continued redeeming work on display. You remember it begins on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down and empowers the apostles to preach powerfully the gospel message. Thousands of Jews believed and were added to the church through their ministry. And then during that time, miraculous healings in the name of Jesus continued to demonstrate that God's redeeming work had Christ had come. Listen to this from Acts chapter 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. Moving forward a little bit. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. Not some of them, not most of them. All of them were healed. All of them were set free from whatever, whatever uh, thing that they needed to be set free from. And while we teach here at this church that the miraculous sign gifts and healings that validated the good news of the gospel during the time of the apostles have ceased, these events remain recorded in scripture for this purpose. As an evidence to you that God's redeeming work in Christ has come. And of course we know the conclusion of that. The gospel goes beyond the Jews and it extends to the Gentiles. And here we are. <laughs> Fast forward today, the local church at CVC and all over the world testify to the reality that God continues to build his kingdom. And aren't we thankful for that? Don't we love to celebrate baptisms? But while God's redeeming work continues in the present time, it will not always continue. There is coming a day of judgment when every person must stand before their judge and their creator, at which time it will be too late to believe the good news of the gospel by faith and experience God's redeeming work for yourself. Which brings us to one last reason that this woman's experience is so crucial for us to possess in the pages of scripture. And that is because in a real sense, her condition either is or was our condition. Now, I'm not aware of any of us that have experienced the torment of a disabling spirit that prevents us from standing up. But because of sin and rebellion against God, we entered this world as captives. Trapped in the bondage of sin, children of Satan, for which the penalty is eternal punishment and suffering in the lake of fire. And so I implore you, if you are listening to this message and you have not placed your faith in the gospel, if you have not experienced God's redeeming work in Christ for yourself, then it is imperative that you look back to Jesus' instruction in 13, verses 3 and 5. Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And Peter continues this theme over in the book of Acts. He says on Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the full forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so my closing exhortation, if that's you, and in a crowd this size, there's always bound to be a few, if not many. Take hold of the promise by faith and repentance and you will experience for the first time true freedom from bondage through God's redeeming work in Christ. And for those of us who have experienced God's redeeming work in Christ, it is first and foremost our privilege to daily glorify God for the freedom that he has given to us in Christ. 
As Paul says in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the full forgiveness of sins, paid in full. And second, we must labor in his strength, but it's our responsibility. We must labor to proclaim in every area of our lives the good news of the gospel that must reach all nations. It must. The good news must go out so that every sinner God is calling to himself might hear the word of Christ. Recognize their need for a savior. Believe in his atoning work and experience true freedom from bondage. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we are deserving of an eternal hell because of our sins against you. And yet in your mercy, through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have drawn many of us to yourself through the word of Christ, through his gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Thank you, Lord, for that sweet freedom that we experience in him, that no matter what happens in our lives, that we know for certain that we have full forgiveness of sins and that your wrath will not fall upon us, but your love and your mercy is one day only known to you. You will bring us home to yourself and we will enjoy the pleasures that you have set set aside for us forevermore. Thank you, Jesus, for that reality. And Lord, for those who you are still calling to yourself, please use those of us who are saved. Use your word. Use prayer. Use all of the means that you've given to us to continue to pursue them with the word of Christ, that they might hear it, that it might spring up into faith, and that they might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.